everyone, and welcome to Social Sport. I'm your host, Emma Zimmerman, and this show is a member of the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. On Social Sport, I feature conversations with endurance athletes of all types committed to fostering social change. These athletes are climate change activists, they're mental health advocates, promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces, and much more. But what ties all of these athletes together is that they're committed to exploring the connection between sport and activism in their lives. This series of social sport on reds and eating disorders is sponsored by Femme Protein Powder. Femme makes a plant-based protein, Femme Power Restore, that provides fuel and recovery with the active female in mind. I have personally had quite the journey in finding a protein powder that I enjoy. I find a lot of them to be really heavy and hard to digest, but Femme protein powder is made with simple plant-based ingredients. It's easy to digest, easy to mix into a post-workout smoothie, and it has a delicious cinnamon vanilla bean flavor. If you share my protein powder frustrations, I know you'll enjoy the simple and delicious Femme Protein Powder. So go check out femproteinpowder.com to order yours. This episode you're about to hear is the first episode in a mini series on eating disorders and relative energy deficiency in sports. Over the next five episodes, you will hear from athletes and professionals of various backgrounds as we speak about this common issue in athletic communities. I'm so excited to launch this series with my guest today, Kira Carter. Kira is currently the editor-at-large at Women's Health. Through her work as a writer, editor, and digital strategist, Kira focuses on health, fitness, nutrition, and beauty. Recently, she wrote an article for Runner's World about relative energy deficiency in sports, otherwise known as REDS. Kira and I talk all about REDS in this episode. You'll learn what it is and why it is such a problem in running and other athletic communities. I've linked Kira's Runner's World article in the show notes, along with information on the next issue of Runner's World, which hits newsstands tomorrow, December 29th. So definitely go check that out as well. Now, without further ado, enjoy this important conversation with Kira Carter. Hi, Kira. Welcome to Social Sport. I'm really looking forward to talking about this super important topic. Hi, thank you for having me. Me too. So just so everyone knows, can you tell us who you are and where you are right now? Yes. I'm Kira Carter. I am a health reporter and editor living in New York. Awesome. And you're the editor at large of Women's Health, correct? Yes. Yes, that is correct. And a writer for so many other outlets that I'm sure listeners have seen and we'll have to link to some of your work in the show notes as well. But what we're here to talk about today mostly is relative energy deficiency in sports. And you recently wrote a really important article about relative energy deficiency in sports or REDS as it's commonly called for runner's world. So first of all, what is REDS? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a mouthful, right? Relative energy deficiency in sports. So we'll, we'll go with REDS. Um, so what is that? It's, it's an imbalance of 
energy. Um, so the energy that you're taking in is not the energy you need. It's not enough for, for what you need to function. And the body is like so fascinating as you kind of start diving into all of the interesting stuff it does to keep us alive. And, you know, your body basically prioritizes movement over most other things, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. So you need to be able to run from a lion or a predator, whatever the threat might be. Um, and that's whether or not you've been eating enough, right? So your body needs to be able to like get out of this dire situation. Um, and so your body makes that a priority instead of so many other long-term bodily processes. So, you know, you might still be able to run and train, but if you're not fueling properly, your your body does start breaking down and, and it shows itself in so many ways, which, which is what makes REDS um, very complex, really. You know, I mean, bone health is a really big issue, but you're also seeing um, issues with immunity and depression and stomach and digestion problems. Um, so it really is very far reaching. For sure. And I like the way you explain that kind of in that evolutionary sense that your body prioritizes movement, because I think that's a really great way to conceptualize it. Cause it really, it doesn't always make sense when you think why can people with red still run so fast for a certain amount of time. Um, and that makes a lot more sense when you explain it that way. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I think people at first will say like, oh, everything's fine. You know, like my training's going well and I'm, you know, maybe hitting the times I want and maybe you even feel okay at first. And it's not until, you know, more time goes on that you're like, oh, like I have a stress fracture and how did that happen? Or, or I just feel so tired, why? Um, and it, it, it takes a while to catch up to you, which, which makes it more confusing too, right? For sure. And I kind of want to debunk and explain the concept of REDS in comparison to other concepts related to movement and exercise and eating, because in my understanding, eating disorders can lead to REDS but REDS can also occur in the complete absence of an eating disorder. What does that mean? What is the relationship between those two terms, REDS and eating disorder? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I have um, heard and, and seen people use them, the terms kind of interchangeably, which isn't quite accurate, even though there is a lot of overlap. So I tend to think of it as a Venn diagram, really, where you have eating disorder on, you know, in one circle, and then you have reds in another circle, and there is a lot of overlap. Um, but you know, ultimately, I think you could have relative energy deficiency in sport, but not have an eating disorder. And and when you think of the people who just simply don't know um, how to fuel their workouts, and I say simply as if it's like that's super easy because it's it's still um, can be very complicated. But um, it's it's not an eating disorder driving those decisions. It's you know I'm just not realizing that you know oh my mileage has increased and I have not increased my fuel um, or and just underestimating your needs. Um, but that is different from say an eating disorder. But of course you know these are very much related and there is a huge um, overlap. So of course, you know, eating disorders are um, really common among, among athletes and just the general population as well. Um, so I think it's completely fair to, to talk about 
both side by side, um, but just keeping in mind that you don't necessarily need to have an eating disorder to have reds. And I think that is important because you don't want people to say like, oh, well, I don't have any you know, problems with eating disorders. So certainly this doesn't apply to me. It, it still could. That's a very important distinction to make. So thank you for explaining that. And you mentioned that eating disorders are really common in athletic communities. And I think they're especially prevalent in the sport of running. And I think there are so many reasons tossed around for why this is a case, why why that's the case, why it's such a big issue in running specifically. And I think it's a combination of reasons. There's no magic bullet answer, in my opinion, why do you think there's such a prevalence of both reds and eating disorders in running? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you that there's not just like one, you know, one thing we can point to and say, if we just solve for this one thing, then the, the problem will improve. And unfortunately, I think there there are a few things going on here. And, you know, one of which is really the type of, person who does really well in sport and particularly running, you know, you're very driven and motivated and you're, um, you want to be in control of your goals. And we know that these are qualities that um, people with eating disorders tend to have as well. Um, And you certainly don't need to look a certain way to have an eating disorder or, you know, be the kind of white woman stereotype. Um, you could be a man, you could be a person of color, um, but we do see this thread in terms of personality. And unfortunately, those same qualities like really do make for a good athlete, right? You're like, you need to be very driven and motivated um, and sticking to your plan and very regimented. Um, and, and that also, I think, makes it really easy to go unnoticed. So you know, when you are just, you know, really sticking to that plan, you're working really hard and you're, um, you know, it seems like you're making good food choices. It's easy for these things to go unnoticed. And I say good food choices as like Mm -hmm. what our culture sees as (laughs) good food choices. Air quotes, Kara had air 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 quotes around that. but, but yeah, I think, I think it's really easy for it to go a unnoticed and, and B be like be rewarded because we're like, look at this person working so hard. Like we love hard work. Um, and it's, it's, it's tricky because at a certain point, you know, you do need to take a step back and say like, I'm not, I'm not recovering properly. I'm not feeding my body properly. Um, and this, you know, kind of hyper focus on, um, every single food choice is, is potentially problematic. I think so many of the things you just said are very important in debunking uh, disordered eating and what it is, because I think that it's often very misunderstood and there are often many kind of myths and ideas around it. You mentioned that it looks a certain way, which it doesn't look a certain way, I'm sorry, which is very much the case. And I think that there is an idea of what an eating disorder looks like, maybe what reds looks like. And I also appreciate what you said about the qualities that lead to this, because I think that's also not really talked about this almost predisposition to having an eating disorder, because you might have these qualities of drive and, you know, working really hard that would also maybe, maybe drive you into obsession, into obsessing over what you eat. Do you see that for the most part when you have spoken with people of either reds or disordered eating that there are 
these qualities that ultimately turn into obsession? Yeah, I mean, I, I for some of the um, some of the athletes I spoke to for the Runner's World story, um, really did speak to you know the challenge with finding that line, right? So, the the line of like I am working really really hard, and that's what I need to do in my sport. I, I want to be the best at what I do, um, and you know this this kind of relationship between hard work. Um, and reward um, is at a certain point you actually get more reward by like taking a step back. Um, and I, I can't take credit for for that. That was um, Jesse Thomas, the um, elite triathlete who really was so open with with his personal story and his journey. And I, I think he really had to come to terms with like I'm I'm killing myself for for this goal and 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 by actually not doing that and making healthier choices, I am actually better able to achieve my goal in the long run. You mentioned Jesse and I'm happy that you did and I'm happy that you included him in the article because I think he is such an important voice in conversations of reds and conversations of disordered eating because I think when we talk about both of these concepts, we think about the highest level of the sport, which Jesse is at, was at, but we also think particularly about women. And the problem is much more diverse than that. Do you have any ideas on how we push conversation on the widespread issue of reds that it's not just elite female athletes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of it is people like Jesse coming out and sharing his story um, and outlets like Runner's World covering it. And I, I think the more we see other people, like people who we might not think struggling with, with really any issue, right? I mean, you want to see yourself in, um, in these stories, otherwise you don't think that they apply to you. Um, and I think in the case of, say, a, a, a man struggling with an eating disorder, um, if you don't think of men struggling with the same thing in any way, because you've never heard of this before, you're never going to say like, oh, maybe I have a problem because it doesn't, you've never really seen that issue before. Um, and, and I think it's way easier when you can relate to somebody else and say like, oh, like I, I do that, or I've, I've experienced that. I've felt that. And, and I see myself in him. And, and I think it's not until, you know, that conversation keeps, keeps progressing, that other people will, will feel like they can, they can relate to these stories. And um, a lot of that, I think, is changing with social media, thankfully, so many people sharing their stories. And, and I think that's really helpful. And I mean, also in terms of body type, I mean, not to go on a, a tangent, but we're seeing so many um, different body types on social media. And, and I think it's really changing what, what we think of when we think of what a runner looks like and what an athlete looks like. And it, it makes it way easier for us to, to relate because now we can see ourselves in um, you know, the, the people talking about these issues. Yeah, 100%. And I think I've seen so much of that. I don't know about you, but just in the last couple of years, I think especially maybe with Mary Kane's op-doc mm -hmm. in the New York Times, I've, I mean, I, I was speaking recently with the woman who exposed the story, the abuse towards Wesleyan student athletes and the body shaming. Mm -hmm. And she was inspired because of Mary Kane's story to tell yeah. her story. And I think I've heard so many instances of that. Yeah, and I, I think once you see 
also a positive response, then you're like, you feel a little safer, like, oh, okay. Like these people shared their stories and they've been supported and like all the comments are really positive and um, it, it makes you feel a little, a little safer. Yeah, for sure. So why was it so important for you to write about this issue? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly a, a big part of it, right? It's just get that understanding. And, you know, I have also been pretty open about my own eating disorder in the past. So um, I suffered from an eating disorder in college, which was um, a long time ago at, at this point, but I, I remember it very clearly. And it was very much defined by secrecy which at the time, you know, I felt like I just couldn't talk about it to, to anybody in my life, even though I, I was really close with my friends and we talked about like everything else, right? I mean, like dating and all these other stressors. And, um, but so much of our social world revolves around food. And, you know, you're, when you're catching up with a friend, you go to a restaurant or a cafe or a bar um, and you're, you're very, um you're, you're expected to to consume things when you're when you're around people yeah. and i and i felt like you know people would be watching me or like judging me and judging me out of love not as like oh look at her but you know if i spent a lot of time in the bathroom because the line was long like would they think that i was purging um and the truth was sometimes i was um because that was part of my eating disorder but the idea of other people knowing that like really, really um, weighed on me. And it wasn't until I had more perspective that um, it really, that, that fact kind of bothered me um, because as I started sharing my story, I realized that I had friends who were going through the same thing um, or just same thing in a, in a different form. So what I mean by that is the stressors that were driving my eating disorder, um, you know, other people were dealing with in a different way. And if we were just able to talk about those things, we would have felt so much better. And with eating disorders being so common, and I should also say disordered eating being so common, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it really felt like, why should I be like hiding in a corner, ashamed of this thing that really our culture like perpetuates like if you just hear the way people talk about food on a day-to-day -day basis even people without quote-unquote eating disorders it's really problematic right so i was just like i'm like really not helping anybody i'm not helping myself um you know certainly not the people around me by by just keeping quiet about this thing that you know really isn't a me problem it's a social problem it's a it's a cultural problem that you know we're all kind of keeping to ourselves and that feels really sad to me and i think we oftentimes forget how much disordered eating is so entrenched in our society i mean you were getting a little bit into it how like diet culture is everywhere and i think we often forget to realize it or we we don't realize it anymore because it's so wrapped up in every piece of society yeah yeah i mean it really really is and and that's you know kind of realizing that was when i was just like i'm not going to feel ashamed for this because like this is a huge part of our culture and you know did i take this messaging to to the extreme in my behavior by restricting my food so so heavily um yes but i mean that's that's kind of the extreme end of a, of a spectrum that i think affects so many people 
And you mentioned these stressors that led to this eating disorder. Do you mind going a bit deeper into that? What were those stressors? Yeah, and I, I think it ultimately stems to what I had said earlier about control. And my eating disorder really thrived in college. And that is a, a pretty common age. And, and that's because, you know, you're, you're kind of on your own for the first time and you're expected to sort of control your life in a, a certain way, right? So you're figuring things out, you're figuring out your place in the world, you're figuring out um, what you want to do with your life and career. I also, I had an insane amount of student loans that just like hung over my head for years. Um, and financial stress is real. Yeah. It was like this dark cloud that just like followed me around. Um, and I, I think for me, my eating disorder was a way of just being like, I can handle anything. I can handle like this massive student loan balance. I can handle not knowing my place in the world. Um, you know, I was also dealing with like kind of typical, like, romantic issues and my my parents were also separating at the time and and I felt like this was like a very tangible way to be like I I don't need like this boyfriend I don't need like a steady family I don't I don't need food you know like and of course that's incredibly problematic and just not true um but I think going back into my eating disordered mind it was like this way of being like I am totally in control I don't need anything and like I'm gonna prove it yeah, the way you are describing this experience is just so relatable and I think so true to so many people. I mean, I'm speaking from the point of view of someone who also struggled with an eating disorder in college, and I appreciate how bluntly you speak about this topic and how much you really string out the reality of why this happens and the need to control and I think that's something that is really true about your writing, too. One thing I love about your writing is how bluntly you talk about taboo topics. I know you've done one of my favorite articles of yours is how to go to rehab in Cosmopolitan. Yeah. And I'm just really curious about that blunt way you write and talk about taboo topics. Does that come naturally or is that more like a muscle you've had to train over time? Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, you know, one thing I think that really helps is, is just the reporting process. So, you know, I feel very lucky to be able to call up some of the top researchers in, you know, whatever topic I'm reporting on. Um, and they can really shed so much light on the, you know, the, the background and the causes and solutions. And it really helps, I think, ground these very complex issues. And when it's a personal topic, it, it also helps like kind of put the the problem in perspective for me, like personally. So it, it almost, it does make it easier to like talk about these issues, like say eating disorders when I'm like, okay, like it's not just me, like here are the statistics and here's what experts say about it. Um, and, you know, I feel like getting personal with writing you know, I like I certainly wouldn't want anybody to read my journal, for example. <laughs> um, but by the time I've really worked on a story, I feel 
like it's it's very like thought out and backed by um, the the appropriate experts, and it, it kind of gives me this this feeling of like being grounded. I want to read your journal. I feel like it's probably very insightful. <laughs> <Please> don't don't. <laughs> You, talk, you mentioned some of these statistics that you use to lead you towards your writing. And I'm wondering if there's anything that stands out in particular. It doesn't have to be a statistic, but any fact about REDS or eating disorders that you wish was more known. Yeah. I, I mean, the statistics on REDS are, they're very all over the place, actually, because it's, you know, you're looking at different sports and then men and women. And, you know, they do studies on like cycling versus um, gymnastics and in the numbers can be some reports are very very high um i i feel comfortable with the number 20 percent of athletes um are not eating enough as kind of a general conservative estimate um but a lot of estimates say that it's even higher and of course that's you know that's not saying like 20 percent of athletes like have anorexia you know it's it's aren't aren't eating enough so there is some sort of disconnect between how they're fueling and what um, and their their training, um, and that's I mean that's a lot. That that means a lot for for people's day to day lives, for their career if they're a professional athlete, you know, and and for their mental health. For sure, that that is a big number, and and again, that's pulling from the whole athlete pool, and I think there are different demographics that probably bring that percentage up. I. I've read a statistic, and again, I need to fact check this, um, and I'll check and put a note in the show notes, but I read a statistic that 50% of athletes in sports that emphasize leanness, so such as distance running gymnastics, have clinically diagnosed eating disorders. Yeah. That's another big one for me. Yeah, and there was even a study on on male cyclists um, putting that number at 50% too, which I think, again, going back to, you know, a lot of like men not really getting a lot of attention in this space, um, that's a high number, 50% of male cyclists. Um, I don't remember the exact um, study it was, but I was like, wow, that's that's incredibly high. That is a huge number for sure. And, and perhaps that's getting even less attention. I see us talking about reds a little bit in the, the running space. I'm not sure about the male cycling space if those conversations are happening. So yeah. So at the end of your article, going back to that Runner's World article, you gave some information on prevention and treatment for REDS and eating disorders. What stands out to you as necessary avenues for prevention? Yeah, I mean, again, I think I I, I keep being like, talk about it. But um, I do think, you know, the more, you know, A, athletes know about this and be their coaches and trainers, the better able will be to to kind of flag it and prevent it and ultimately treat it. Um, because like I said earlier, it, it is very complicated. Like it's not the kind of thing where, okay, you go to your doctor and then you take a test and they're like, okay, it came back negative. You don't have reds. Like it's, you know, you can look at your hormones and bone scans, um, which will help create a picture um, for your provider. Um, but it's, like I said, it's very far reaching. So you, you do need to speak to a few different professionals, not just your coach um, or trainer. 
Um, and I think a lot of coaches and trainers are very well meaning, but also need to kind of understand the, the limitations of their expertise as well. So, you know, if there is a, um, a food issue going on, you know, really speak to a registered dietitian who can provide that tailored advice and take a look at, you know, your, your diet and your training plan and, and really help you um, fine tune the needs for your body. And I think, you know, in terms of treatment, um, if you do have an eating disorder, you are definitely going to need to speak to a therapist. And of course, it depends on the severity as, as well. But, um, you know, there will definitely be some mental health component to, to your treatment. Um, and, and in some cases, you know, you'll need to, to speak to multiple experts, right? Because you need to tackle the health problems and potentially the mental health problems. Sure. Thank you for laying that out for everyone. And you've mentioned a few things like bone scans and bone density. And I think often coaches and on different platforms, we hear that there are health effects to REDS. Could you give us a little bit more of an idea of the long-term health effects? Because I think it's often not understood just how long-term and dire they can be. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, like I said earlier too, you might not start seeing these effects until later. Um, so, you know, bone health is, is a really big one. Um, you, you know, and this really stems from the hormonal changes that are going on in your body. Um, and this is men and women, like, you know, I think for women, when, when we lose our period, that is like a, a big sign that things are off. Um, so it could be a little trickier for men. Mm -hmm. Um, but men do experience hormonal changes with this problem um, that could also compromise their bone health. Um, so again, like you're really, you're looking at potential stress fractures, osteoporosis, um, your immune system also becomes compromised, which, you know, is always a problem, but in the, the land of pandemic, we definitely want to keep our immune systems as strong as we can. And stomach problems is your digestion, like you, like every system in your body needs fuel. Um, and this can be kind of tricky in particular because, you know, you could go to the doctor and they could say like, oh, you have IBS. Um, and then put you on a, like a, basically like a diet, an elimination diet, mm. which is the worst thing you could do for somebody who's under fueling. Um, but that's again, why I think we need to like, have this as part of our conversation because now you know like maybe reds is the problem and you could bring that up to your doctor because it again it really affects every system in the body just hearing you lay out all these facts it almost seems like it's just so clear and so simple the way you talk about it which i know it's a very complex issue i don't want to understate that but it makes me wonder even more why is this topic still so taboo because i think it is even though you and i are having these conversations there's articles written about it different conversations happening i still think it's not being talked about enough for example on collegiate running teams high school running teams why is that I mean, that is a great question. And I, I wish I had a better answer for you. I mean, I think I think it's because it, it is, again, it's complex. And I, the, some of the symptoms are similar to the symptoms of overtraining. You know, you're in the kind of immediate, I guess, 
present, you're looking at some fatigue and you're tired, you're moody, you're anxious. And so I, I think coaches and, and the people in your community are, are very well-meaning in that, you know, maybe they're like, oh, just, just take a rest. You've been training really hard. Um, and, and perhaps that's true. You're like, you know what, I have been training really hard and I'm just, I'm just anxious and I'm tired and I like need to take a couple days off. Um, so it's really easy for it to just look like something else. Um, and, and I think that does make it very tricky. But I think leading into eating disorders though, there is still the, the element of secrecy too. So I, I don't think, you know, it's, it's easy to come out and say like, oh, I've been, you know, starving myself for days, which in the case of, you know, I think a, a lot of people, um, and and it's easy for me to talk about, I think now, now that it's behind me, it wasn't easy when I was in the middle of it, you know, and I, I think it's it's challenging to have those conversations. And and in some ways, it's it's a lot easier to be like, you know what, it probably is just that I'm running too much. For sure. And you keep bringing up this idea of shame, which I think is really important, especially in eating disorders as this moves. If we're looking at the Venn diagram, reds, eating disorders, if this moves more into the eating disorders realm, which also results in reds, there is a lot of shame to that. It's a condition. It's a mental health condition. The people can't, don't choose it. And I think that's another misconception. Mm -hmm. If you were to give some sort of call to action to, I guess I'll focus on collegiate runners, any young runners on a team to have these conversations among teammates who might be struggling to talk about this issue and get rid of that shame. What would you say? I would say it's a lot more common than you think. And, and I think there's, there's definitely something sad about that, but it, but I think when you're going through it, there's comfort in knowing like, you know, it's not you experiencing this like fringe problem that makes you like weird in some way, you know? And it, and it can feel like that when you're in the middle of, you know, something like an eating disorder. Um, but I, there's a good chance that the person you're talking to might say like, oh yeah, I feel a similar way. You know, even if it's not the same exact issue, it, you know, it might look a little different for them, but um, I, I think you, you might be surprised that people, um, how much people can relate to you. And I, I think kind of second to that, I, I would just emphasize not comparing yourself to other people too at, at the same time. And I, I think in sport, that's really challenging because you're literally like, here's my time, here's your time. And like you won, you know, like it's, it's very hard, but in terms of body type, you know, there really isn't one body that, you know, is a, a successful runner's body um, or one body type. And, and I think it's really easy to fall into to that mindset too, where it's like, oh, well, so-and-so competes at a really high level and she looks a certain way. So if I look that way, then, you know, maybe I will be as successful as her. And that's not the case. Thank you for bringing up that comparison aspect, because I think that is really important to highlight. And it also, I think, goes back to the shame in that I think there's a sense, especially among coaches, maybe that eating disorders are contagious and that by talking about this, it'll allow 
athletes to compare themselves, cause athletes to compare themselves might lead to an even bigger problem on a team, which, well, I guess I'll ask you, I'll throw that back to you. What would you say to that? Um, Yeah, I mean, I would just say that that is a myth. I mean, I think it's really important to create a safe space where people can talk to, you know, if if not their peers, then then their coach, you know, who's an authority figure and somebody who is literally like giving advice on on a day to day basis, you know, and even if they're not the the person who's going to treat the problem, you know, they should be able to recommend further help depending on, you know, what the exact problem is. Um, but, you know, certainly it's, it's not something that's like, oh, if we talk about it, it's going to happen more. If anything, I think it, it just leads to more people getting help. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking about and writing about this very important topic, but instead of ending on the note of this this deep and important topic we can get into some fun stuff to wrap us up so i have some rapid fire questions first of all what has been your favorite story to write ever ever oh my goodness wow is that i feel like that's like choosing a favorite child or something i don't know i don't have kids um you can tell me your favorite topic to write about if that's easier Um, you know, one of my absolute favorite stories was actually a beauty story that I wrote about body hair and women and how, um, women were getting death threats for like growing out their body hair and like, just basically like embracing like their natural state of their body. Um, and I like did this deep dive. This was for Marie Claire on like what that means and like why people are so threatened by female body hair. I, I just thought it was so interesting um, and like really kind of united like this interest I have in like bodies and like social issues. So anyway, if you want to check that out, it's on Marie Claire. <laughs> so cool. Big recommend. And I think that topic is so important and interesting. And I think it's it depends on where you are too. Like I even think myself, I went to a hippie liberal arts school in college and I was completely comfortable growing out, you know, all my body hair. And now like in in New York City, it's like, oh no, 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 no. And that is intriguing to me. But you can't do that. (laughs) So weird. So what is your favorite part of the New York City Marathon? I know you've run it a number of times. Oh, oh my goodness. My favorite part. Um, I think the start line, you know, it's such a process to get there. It's kind of the the best and the worst because you have to wake up at like 4.30 in the morning and get yourself, you know, from wherever you are to the Staten Island Ferry and then you have to get to the ferry and it's like, it's out of the way for most people um, unless you live like in, in Staten Island. But if you're coming from Manhattan or Brooklyn or like, it's, it's just such a, it's an early morning and you it just gives you so much time to like really like meditate and Mm. get into like whatever brain space you want to be in for the race and you meet so many interesting people like on the ferry or if you take the bus I took the bus one year and like just sitting next to like just people from everywhere I think one year I was sitting next to a woman who flew from Costa Rica and was like running with her sister it was just like I, I think it really like speaks to the spirit a lot too in those quiet moments Um, because then it gets very loud and there's a lot of cheering, which is also very exciting, but um, I appreciate the, the peaceful morning as well. 
I love how your answer was so journalist. I just am imagining you on that bus, you know, asking people for their stories when other runners are kind of sitting nervously. It's so annoying. People are probably like, shut up. It's five in the morning. I would love it. I would talk to you. I would tell you my whole life story. So what is the best place to get an amazing New York bagel? Oh my goodness. An amazing New York bagel. Um, you know, I'm a fan of, let's see, I would say H&H, which they, you know, distribute throughout the city, but there's one, the like main headquarters is like on the West side. Um, and you have to like get the, like you have to buy the cream cheese separately and then like put it on yourself. At least that's how it used to be. Interesting. Um, but it's really good. Awesome. And who is your favorite bodega cat? Oh, my favorite bodega. Actually, I have like a like a sob story with bodega cats because my local bodega cat was stolen by No. Yeah, he was this adorable kitten was like like just amazing. I would take so many pictures of him um, and would always pet him and he was amazing. And one day he was just gone. And I mean, he was gone for a, like long enough that I asked, I was like, what happened to the cat? And somebody took the cat. So if anybody knows who took the bodega cat on second Avenue and 111th street, let me know. Yeah. Anyone listening in that's Harlem, right? Uh, yes, yeah, Harlem area. Look out for that bodega cat. That's a sad story. I'm sorry to hear that. No, I, I brought it down. This was supposed to be the uplifting part. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, no worries. I I just found I saw all the pictures you take of bodega cats on your Instagram and thought I needed to bring that up. My brand. <laughs> so the last question I ask everyone is: Why is sport a powerful platform for social change? I love that question so much. And I think, you know, I kind of think to like, you know, that feeling when you have like a really wonderful run, that's like whatever mileage feels really good to you. And it just, everything goes really well. And you're like, hit the paces you want. And like, just at that, like right level of adrenaline. And then you like get home and stretch and you just feel like amazing. Um, I, in those moments, I'm always like runners can change the world. Like if we like, just like that feeling where you're like, I could do anything, you know? Um, you could just bottle that up and channel it into like just all the good in the world. Um, I think we could really do so much. And and we are, you know, I think runners have done so many amazing things and have spoken out about so many important issues. Um, but like that, that kind of like that feeling like I can do anything. Um, I think we have so much like power when we tap into that um, and really use it to, to create action. That might be one of my favorite answers so far. I think as runners, we all know, we all know that feeling of you finish a great run. You're like, maybe I could change the world. Could I? I need that feeling to last like a little longer. Like I need to figure out a way <laughs> to like make it last throughout the whole day. Um, it's still working. For sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kira. Thank you for all of the incredible work that you do and the topics that you talk about. It is just so important, I think, to write and speak about Reds and everything that you write and speak about. So thank you. No, thank you. I'm, I'm so excited that you are, you know, dedicating your time and energy to, to this topic. And I am really excited to, to hear the episode. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. I feel so lucky to be able to host this series on a topic that is so important, reds and eating disorders in athletics. It is an often misunderstood, always under-discussed topic. Over the next few episodes, you will hear different perspectives and experiences that relate to this same issue. If you are enjoying social sport, you can stay up to date by following the show on Instagram at socialsportpod. You can find the show notes over at sidiousmag.com in the podcasts tab under social sport. And I would love nothing more than if you went over to Apple Podcasts, subscribed to Social Sport, and left a rating and a review. All right, everyone, we are almost there. Only a few more days left of 2020. We can do it. And in the meantime, keep sporting and keep resisting.